Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 253, the Second Bulgarian Empire. Last time, we watched on in horror as the Normans sacked Thessaloniki, then restrained our jubilation as the Emperor Andronicus was torn apart by the mob. It may have felt like justice, but it marked the end of the Komnenian dynasty. For over a century, one family had provided stability at the top. They had kept the empire together and commanded the loyalty of the nobleman who ran the state. But now, this new aristocracy had no clear leader. Every man with a blood connection to the Komnenoi could claim that he represented the true continuity of Manuel's reign. The only thing this class seemed to agree on was that Isaac Angelos was not the man to lead them. This wasn't because Angelos was an unworthy man, but simply because his qualifications to be Vasilevs were no better than anyone else's. Angelos had been swept to power by accident and now faced a daunting task. Isaac II Angelos was born in 1156, making him just 29 years old when he became emperor a perfectly reasonable age for a prince to take over from his father, having spent his youth being prepared for office. But of course Isaac was not a prince, and had undergone no training for the highest office in the land. The Angeloi had joined the Komnenian clan when Alexius Komnenos had married one of his daughters to Isaac's grandfather. Isaac's father had served Manuel well, and as we heard two episodes ago, it was the Angeloi who was sent to stop Andronicus from reaching the Bosphorus. After failing to do this, the men of the family defected to Andronicus to avoid punishment for their failure. But as soon as Andronicus had moved on, they became leaders of his opposition at Nicaea. After the failure of their revolution, Isaac managed to live quietly at the family home in Constantinople until the events of our last episode. Andronicus's paranoid attempt to snuff out potential usurpers ended up creating the movement which destroyed him. The people elevated Isaac to be emperor simply because he was the latest target of Andronicus's murderous regime. Angelos became emperor then by luck more than anything else. He was a Komnenian aristocrat and had served in his father's army, but he had never held a significant administrative post and was thoroughly unprepared to run the empire even in normal circumstances, let alone an empire in the greatest crisis since the first days 
of Alexius Komnenos's reign. Our historian Coniates describes Isaac as reasonably capable and amiable. He had red hair and was often red-faced. He was a widower with a seven-year-old son, inevitably named Alexius. Coniates thinks Isaac wasn't as tough as he needed to be. Like most of the aristocratic clan, he dressed well, enjoyed his food and other luxuries, and worst of all, he bathed every other day far too often for Coniates' liking. Isaac was no fool and understood the task facing him, but he seemed to lack any particularly outstanding qualities. Comparisons with the reign of Alexius Komnenos himself are entirely justified, as we'll see throughout this episode. Starting with the first problem in Isaac's entry, a Norman invasion. At least Alexius had some time to think as he marched to Dyrrhachium to face Robert Giscard. Isaac, by contrast, was greeted by messengers telling him that the Normans were already on the road to Constantinople. The one good thing about a desperate situation is that it limits your options, making decisions easier to take. As you may recall, Andronicus had mobilised his Balkan armies, but he'd kept them in five different divisions, for fear that combining them under one leader might create an opportunity for rebellion. With his capital at stake, Isaac couldn't worry about that. So he ordered the most experienced general in the field, Alexius Vranas, to take charge of the army. The Normans, having gorged themselves on the treasure of Thessalonica, had divided their forces into three groups. One stayed behind to garrison the city, another held the crossing of the Strymon River, and the third had advanced to Mosinopolis, nearly halfway to Constantinople. Vranus gathered up his forces and made his way to Mosinopolis, where he caught the Normans by surprise and routed them. The Sicilians on the Strymon were alarmed when half their army came rushing back into camp with the Byzantines hot on their heels. The Normans offered peace talks, which Vranas took as a sign of weakness. With his troops high on confidence, he launched an attack on the 7th of November, 1185. The Normans held him off initially until Vranas's cavalry charged into them and the Sicilian army broke and fled. It was an unexpectedly complete victory. The two Norman commanders leading the expedition were captured, as was Manuel Komnenos's cupbearer, who had lobbied for the invasion in the first place. And the rest of the Normans ran for the hills. Some headed for Dyrrhachium, while others went back to the boats they'd left at Thessaloniki. Not everyone could sail away, though, and the few Normans left behind were brutally killed by revenge-hungry citizens. The rest of the Norman fleet had advanced to the Sea of Marmara and now had to turn around and get out of Dodge before they too were assaulted. The following year, Isaac sent an army to Dyrrhachium, which retook the port city. As quickly as it had come to devastate the empire, the Norman invasion was over. The people of Constantinople rejoiced in their choice of emperor. Clearly God approved of Isaac Angelos, the Angel of the Lord, as his propagandists styled him. They jeered as Norman prisoners were led through the streets, 
they cheered when they saw Alexius Vranas marching behind them. But that was Isaac's problem in a nutshell. Shortly afterwards, Vranas made a bid for the throne. You see, Alexius Vranas was not only the empire's most capable general, he was also a relative of the Komnenoi. He was the son of a grand-niece of Alexius Komnenos, and had married a niece of Manuel's. His blood connections were just as good as Isaac's, and he was a far more experienced and better connected member of the aristocracy. A unit of his army acclaimed him Basilefs in the streets and led him to the Ahia Sophia, where they hoped the crowds would sweep him to high office, just as they had done with Isaac. But they didn't. The people had no reason to complain about their new emperor yet. Vranas was led, embarrassed, before Isaac, where he begged for mercy. Staring down at Vranas, spread out on the ground before him, Isaac had to make a choice. He could be Andronicus and murder everyone who opposed him, or he could be Manuel and forgive. He chose the high road. He stripped Vranas of his command, but let him leave unharmed. It was a kind choice, and one that signalled that the dark days of Andronicus were over. But it did not solve the fundamental problem of his new regime. Isaac lacked legitimacy. There wasn't really a good reason why he, and not Alexius Vranas, should be emperor. And sadly for the Roman people, Vranas was only the first of the empire's ruling class to try and seize the top job for themselves. Sensing this, Angelos rushed to secure as many alliances as he could, trying to bind important people to his new regime. He married his sister to the leading aristocrat, John Cantacuzinos. He put his uncle John in charge of the army and his uncle Theodore in charge of the bureaucracy, and then he looked further afield. As you know, Manuel had married his daughter to Renier of Montferrat, a leading Italian family. Since Renier had been murdered by Andronicus, Isaac offered their family another high-profile marriage in compensation. Conrad of Montferrat would arrive the next year to marry one of Isaac's sisters. Angelos also exchanged embassies with the Venetians, confirming the deal which Andronicus had already developed, and the Venetian alliance soon resumed. How else could the Romans prevent another Norman attack? The merchants of Venice would have all their old privileges restored and be paid a 100,000 gold coins to cover the losses from Manuel's mass incarcerations. Meanwhile, the emperor offered his niece to Stefan Nemanja of Serbia, whose forces had been running wild since Manuel's death. Nemanja married her to his son with a promise to respect the Byzantine border. And finally, Isaac offered himself as a suitable husband for the daughter of King Bela of Hungary. Bela, as you may recall, had spent time at the Byzantine court and nearly became Manuel's heir. When Andronicus had bloodied up the palace, Bela had led his armies deep into Roman territory, sacking cities and taking prisoners. But he was more than happy to restore good relations now that the tyrant was gone. 
so he withdrew his troops back to Sirmium, presenting the lands he vacated as a dowry for his daughter, Margaret. There was just one hitch. Isaac was running out of money. As I briefly mentioned last episode, the mob that brought him to power also ransacked the palace. They carried off thousands of gold coins that were stored there, depriving Isaac of valuable treasure. He'd used up the money that was left, funding the campaign against the Normans. So in spring 1186, his agents announced to the people of the region which the Hungarians had just vacated that they would need to pay a special tax whose proceeds would fund the wedding of Isaac and Margaret. I suppose the logic was that this union would bring peace, and therefore these areas were going to benefit from this new surcharge. But as you can imagine, the news was met with disgust. Many coughed up, but there was strong resistance from the Vlachs who lived in the Hemus Mountains. These Vlachs were pastoralists, people who moved their flocks around the northern Balkans between summer and winter pastures. They also spoke a language which had pre-Slavic origins, connected to the Latin spoken by Roman settlers from centuries before. The Vlachs rubbed along reasonably with Byzantine authority, in part because their movements kept them away from contact with the taxman, until they came to towns like Ankyalos and were forced to pay sales tax on their goods. We believe this new levy was a head tax on their flocks, which, as you can imagine, was deeply resented. The Vlachs of the Hemus range dispatched two of their leaders, brothers named Peter and Arson, to negotiate with the emperor. They asked Isaac to give them some pro-Noya land, as in... The land would be a free gift, but in exchange they would supply men to serve in the Roman army. This would help offset their losses from the new tax. This type of request was often granted by new emperors because they were keen to make friends and maintain the peace. But Isaac said no. Presumably he didn't think that the Vlachs were an important enough group to give concessions to. Peter and Arson became angry and began issuing threats. Their people would raid the lands of their neighbours if a deal could not be struck. What was struck was Arson's face, as Isaac's uncle John decided to respond with force to these angry words. The brothers left humiliated and returned home, determined to raise the standard of revolt against the Romans. When they found that some of their countrymen were reluctant to join them, they made an appeal to a higher authority. A church was founded and dedicated to St. Demetrius, who, as you may know, had long been the patron saint of Thessaloniki. The brothers and their priests announced that St. Demetrius had abandoned the Romans, hence the sack of his former city. He now dwelt north of the Hemus Mountains and lent his support to a revived Bulgarian empire. The Vlachs had been in the Hemus region for centuries and had happily served the Bulgar Tsars. An appeal to those glory days did the trick. Many Slavic peoples joined the rebellion and hailed Peter as Tsar. He and Arsen led raids into the surrounding countryside, taking slaves and animals back to their new base at Ternovo. 
Peter and Arsene's decision to model their rebellion on the old Bulgarian Empire is a fascinating one. It shows that memories of the Tsars were kept alive across the region, and that it was remembered less as a national state for Bulgarian people, and more a sort of pan-Balkan anti-Roman kingdom. Peter and Arsene were Vlachs, after all, not Bulgarians. But they knew that their revolt had no chance of succeeding unless they made it appealing to the wider Slavic population. The use of St. Demetrius is interesting as well. Orthodox Christianity was now a major part of the culture for most Balkan peoples. This early Christian military saint had escaped his Roman setting and become a popular figure to all. Also, before we blame Isaac's tax policy for this mess, it's worth remembering that since Manuel had died, the Hungarians had captured a series of major Byzantine cities, Sirmium, Belgrade, Branicevo, Nish, Serdica. His troops had raided deep into the region where this revolt took place, and this was followed by the Norman invasion and the fall of Thessalonica. Roman authority in the Balkans was at an all-time low, Rebellious behaviour of one sort or another was highly likely. The question was, how would Isaac respond? Later that year, Isaac led an army north to put the brothers down. Apparently, a solar eclipse allowed the emperor to march through the mountain passes and attack their home territory without warning. Peter and Arson's army routed and the brothers fled north to the Danube. Isaac was able to recover an icon of St. Demetrius, symbolically restoring him to the empire. Angelos marched home to celebrate, leaving a few garrisons behind. Case closed. Right? Wrong. Peter and Arson made contact with various Cuman tribes who lived beyond the Danube, presumably using the money they'd taken on their raids of the Roman countryside they lured these steppe nomads into their camp and returned south. When Tsar Peter and his brother returned to the Hemus region, they quickly overwhelmed the garrisons left behind and reinstalled themselves in power. The following spring, they began to raid the countryside again. Once more, the reign of Alexius Komnenos seems to hang over Isaac. After defeating the Normans, Alexius spent years fighting the Pechenegs, who had broken through the Danube defences. Now the Cumans provided the nomad backbone that would help establish what has become known as the Second Bulgarian Empire. This was far more dangerous to the Romans than the Pechenegs had been on their own. An organised state in the Balkans would contest imperial control of the whole peninsula. And with most of Anatolia gone, Constantinople relied on the tax revenue of its European lands to fund its whole operation. Peter and Arson had to be wiped out before they could put down roots. In spring 1187, Isaac sent an army out to put down the rebellion, but the first general he sent was accused of plotting against him. The second foolishly chased the Bulgarians into the mountains and nearly got his army destroyed. So in desperation, Isaac recalled Alexius Vranas, the hero of the Norman War, to get the job done. Sigh. Predictably, Vranas gathered up the army 
turned it around and marched on Constantinople. As it always seemed to do in times of crisis, civil war returned to plague the Romans. Vranus was still a popular figure. He took the army to his home city of Adrianople, where he was hailed as emperor. As he approached the capital, many towns opened their gates to him. It seemed likely that the victorious general and senior aristocrat would soon be the Vasilefs. Arriving at Constantinople, Vranus arrayed his troops in front of the land walls and asked the citizens to overthrow Isaac or face his men. The people remained loyal to Angelos, though things were getting tense. Next, the general seized the northern bank of the Golden Horn and made common purpose with the fishermen who worked there. He managed to persuade them to steal a few imperial ships, but again Isaac's men clung on and held the waters against Vranus. Angelos was in a desperate situation and the clock was ticking. The longer the siege went on, the more hunger would bite and the people would begin to turn on him. He did have some soldiers at his disposal, but they were completely outnumbered by Vranus's army. Fortunately, Conrad of Montferrat, the kind of daring Latin knight that Isaac needed at this moment, was on hand. He advised the emperor to hire mercenaries from the people resident in the capital, and that he, Conrad, would lead the cavalry in a sortie against Vranus's army. Once again, though, Isaac was short of money, having given most of the treasury surplus to Vranus to pay the army. In another scene reminiscent of Alexius Komnenos's reign, he considered taking money from the church to pay his men, but afraid of losing ecclesiastical support, he decided against it. Instead, a loan was arranged. He essentially used the capital's richest monasteries like a pawn shop. He handed over all the imperial silver dishes in exchange for cash. With this money, Conrad recruited 250 knights and 500 foot soldiers from amongst the Latins of Constantinople. Then he hired Turkish and Georgian traders to fight alongside the few Byzantine troops and palace guards that Isaac could muster. In desperation, the emperor freed his Norman captives and armed them too. Vranus's army were not expecting the attack which followed, which may explain why they broke apart so quickly. Isaac's patchwork force began to engage them with missiles before suddenly Conrad in the centre and Isaac on the right wing drove their cavalry forward in one great charge. Sections of Vranus's infantry lost their nerve and fled. Vranus led his cavalry in to stop the rot, but was unhorsed and killed in the melee. When news of his death spread, the rest of his army abandoned the field and ran home. Conrad's daring do had saved Isaac's throne. Despite the celebrations that followed, this was all bad news for Byzantium. Angelos had survived, but his victory did not convince many that he was the angel of the Lord. The Comnenian nobles who'd backed Alexius Vranus sent Isaac an ultimatum. Either he could forgive them en masse and leave their wealth untouched, or they would join the Bulgarian rebellion. Again, Isaac felt compelled to be lenient, despite the fact that these men had been more than happy to murder him the previous day. 
He then allowed Conrad's men to plunder the countryside in order to supplement their pay. He directed them towards the fishermen of the Bosphorus and the villages which had supplied Vranus's army, despite the presence of many innocent citizens who would be caught in the crossfire. This Latin-led army then returned to the capital and began looting monasteries and rich houses to claim the pay they felt they were owed. The native Constantinopolitans deeply resented this. Many of them had been pleased to see the back of the Italian merchants when Andronicus had set the dogs on them five years earlier. Now these foreigners were back, lording their power over the locals again. This wasn't pure xenophobia. There was also a strong religious element to the people's anger. The crowd saw themselves as defenders of orthodoxy. Latin troops robbing monasteries was sinful as well as criminal. Rather than take on Conrad's armed troops, the people once again turned on the merchant quarters along the Golden Horn. This time, though, the Latins knew what was coming. The traders of the area had barricaded the narrow entrances to their streets and armed themselves. They spent the day fending off attacks from the disorganized populace. Isaac scrambled his officials to go and intercede, and managed to talk both sides down from the ledge. The Roman Empire was becoming increasingly hard to govern. If another massacre of Latin citizens had taken place, there was every chance that Byzantium would become a pariah amongst the Western nations, open to attacks on every front. What Isaac needed was time and space. He desperately wanted the Latin nations to stay out of his business until he could get the Bulgarian situation under control. We can only imagine the expression on his face when, that autumn, messengers arrived to tell him that Jerusalem had fallen to the armies of Islam. Before that fateful letter was delivered, Isaac decided to take the field himself. He clearly couldn't trust the army under any other man, so he gathered the remnants of Rannus's force and marched north to track down Peter and Arson. He found them in a stop-start campaign which Coniates witnessed in person. The problem was that the new Bulgarian army now had steppe riders leading the way. The Cumans led Isaac's troops on a merry dance. They feigned retreat every time the Romans got near, waited until their pursuers were tired, and then wheeled around to shoot at them. Isaac, like Alexius before him, was left to chase shadows for the rest of the year. The emperor kept his army together, but achieved little beyond showing the flag to the locals. When Isaac finally returned to the capital, he was greeted with more bad news. Kilij Arslan II had raided imperial territory in the emperor's absence, and the commander of the Thracision theme was in revolt. Worse still, the fleet which Isaac had sent to retake Cyprus had been destroyed. You may recall from last episode that another Comnenian noble, Isaac Ducas Komnenos, had set himself up as emperor on the island. Angelos sent 70 ships to restore order, but after a successful landing, the marines had marched inland to do battle with the pretender, leaving their ships undefended. A Sicilian pirate named Margaritius swooped in, capturing some of the ships and sinking others. 
The distracted Roman army was then defeated by Ducas. The whole campaign was a fiasco. Knowing that the seas were now undefended, Margaritius raided the Aegean islands on his way home. With all these disasters unfolding simultaneously, Isaac was unable to collect taxes in about half of the provinces he'd inherited. We leave Isaac Angelos wondering what on earth to do next. He knew a new crusade would be called to restore Jerusalem, one that could well threaten his capital. And he had rebellions in east and west to deal with. We will return to his plight in two weeks' time. In our next episode, we'll be talking to author Ben Duval, who will tell us what's been going on in Outremere since we were last there, and how exactly the Kurdish general Saladin came to be the man who captured Jerusalem. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.